Hi, Caleb. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How are you doing? Doing well? I lied. I'm not doing well. Why not? There is a heat advisory in the area tonight, and it is extremely uncomfortable here. And as we mentioned in the last episode, you make me shut off my air conditioner. So it's very uncomfortable here right now. We do it for the listeners, and I'm sure they will appreciate the decreased fan noise as a result. We're suffering for our art. We are. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, since the temperature is above 90 degrees, I made myself a gin and tonic, which is my official I-need-to-cool-off drink with the lovely Junipero gin from Anchor Distillery here in San Francisco. All right. Yeah, quite delightful. How about you? I have a blood and sand tonight. Oh, very nice. Very Scottish of you. Yes, and I had some fresh, uh, fresh oranges, so I decided to make it blood, blood and sand. Excellent. So this is a big week. We got a gift from the government. We, we did. We got a new set of guidelines that had been hotly anticipated by the automotive industry and uh, automotive fans of self-driving vehicles because the uh, U.S. Department of Transportation released their Federal Automated Vehicles Policy, new guidelines that establish a framework for the safe, effective incorporation of automated vehicle technology. That sounds very official. It is. And basically, as more and more companies have been trying to introduce semi-autonomous or fully autonomous vehicles, they have really had to go to uh, the National Highway Safety Transportation Administration, NHTSA, uh, and also uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation, which is the parent organization for NHTSA, to get clarification on certain guidelines and rules around what a driver is, getting uh, uh, permission to drive certain vehicles on public roads that are self-driving. Yeah, because previously there there really hadn't been any need to clarify what a driver is, right? Because it was always humans that were driving vehicles. Yeah, exactly. The um, the administration was created in the 1950s, almost exactly, well, 1960s, almost exactly 50 years ago. And obviously at that point in time, cars were really starting to boom in the in the U.S. The interstate highways were really kicking in and uh, they started mandating uh, about safety and also just generally best practices for for the automotive industry. And uh, they're responsible for ensuring the safety of the traveling public, both in the air, the sky, or sky, sea, and land. And um, but you know most most uh, most things haven't been changing uh, with the automotive world until very very recently. And so a lot of the policymakers had been uh, in states had been looking for guidance from the federal government and the automotive industry and technology companies had been looking for more clarification around what would be legal, what would be illegal, what would the government want to see, so they'd have more um, sort of consistency in building plans to release uh, fully autonomous vehicles. So this is the first step from the federal government to do it. And it's a over 160 page document. And uh, it's it's quite a long read, but um, we got through a lot of it. <laughs> so, uh, so previously, as you mentioned, it had been like a, a state by state thing. And I, I seem to recall reading that um, obviously California and I think Nevada were, were states that were pretty amenable to self-driving vehicles on the roads uh, at the moment. And this is designed to standardize things across all states. Is that is that what you're saying? It's intended to, um, it is intent, it does have a section around uh, in, imploring the states to follow guidelines that the federal government will lay out and create clear delineation between what the federal government will uh, be responsible for and what states should be responsible for so that states don't overstep and um, start licensing or mandating what 
technologies are in cars, which is actually supposed to be at the federal level. Um, and also, even at the very local level, this announcement was actually made in Pittsburgh, and um, and Uber has recently uh, started doing some self-driving tests in in Pittsburgh as well. And uh, there was a big piece about the the mayor of Pittsburgh being very pro uh, innovation and pro self-driving vehicles. So it's even gotten to the local level of, of um, particular municipalities allowing self-driving cars on their streets. So the federal government really wanted to. Um, start getting getting involved and also make it clear their power to regulate these vehicles and ensure that they are safe and and make it clear that they will issue recalls if they feel they're unsafe or they are um, putting putting people at, at risk undue risk all right so let's uh oh before we dive in president obama also wrote a op-ed this week in the pittsburgh gazette timed with the release of this report yes so yeah president obama penned a piece about why he thinks that self-driving fully automated cars are a good thing touting a lot of the stats we've been talking about around uh decreased deaths reduced accidents overall definitely emphasizing the safety issue yeah, very much about safety. Um, also then secondarily about uh, increased access for mobility to folks who have disabilities or choose not to drive or don't have access to the resources to afford a car or, or personal transportation. And that um, they want he wants to see self-driving cars come out. I mean, he sort of talked about how when he started in office, he had to use a BlackBerry and <laughs> had to had to have all these technologies that weren't even around when he started office uh, seven and a half years ago. Uh, and just to sort of prove the point that this is moving very quickly and that he, he wants to make sure that um, his administration at least starts the starts the charge before he leaves office on on making sure self-driving cars become a reality um, in the near term. And, and I think that was one of the other overriding messages um, through through this entire sort of choreographed announcement last week um, was that the federal government is in support of uh, fully self-driving cars. Um, they are in support of the progression from where we are today to that point. And they want to work with automakers and technology companies and the public to ensure it happens as quickly and as safely as possible and that they're trying to get out ahead of it uh, which is very different than their traditional posture towards new technologies like airbags, seatbelts, um, emergency braking, ABS, which typically were introduced by automakers first um, and then only as sort of self-certified as safe. And then only after quite a while did the government get involved in regulating them uh, and then also eventually mandating that they become part of the federal safety standard for vehicles. So this is one of the first times they've actually come out ahead of a technology being mass adopted to uh, try and uh, actually it sort of accelerate its advent, as well as um, ensure that it goes uh, more to the key, to the way they want it to happen. Especially since this is going to be a pretty big, pretty big difference in terms of the technology advancement. They they sort of equated it to the difference between a horse-drawn carriage, the horse's carriage, and then fully autonomous vehicles so they, they see it as a as a third wave of um ground transportation all right so uh yeah let's dive into into this report then what struck me in the uh in the first part so the executive summary which is usually the only part i would read in in something like this um, you are an executive <laughs> in this case i did go a little deeper but yeah they really struck a few important points safety uh accessibility and then finally environmental impact um, so yeah, maybe we can drill into that a little bit. 
Yeah, so on the safety side, uh, some stats they shared, which we have referenced, but now we're for 2015, that 35,092 people died in traffic crashes in the U.S. And a new stat, to me at least, was that 2.4 million people were injured um, and that they claim 94% of those crashes are caused in some way by human choice or error. And I was mentioning that I, I thought the, the choice of the word choice was, <laughs> um, was very uh, unique because... Um, a lot of times I think we think of these as accidents. Um, they're called accidents. I know this is a bugaboo for you, but, but a, lot of a lot of these crashes and deaths are actually uh, choices by people to drink and drive, uh, to be impaired in some other way, uh, to not be rested. Yeah, the choice happened earlier, right? It's not necessarily that you, you chose to do something reckless it's, or that you chose to turn the wheel in a certain direction and cause the accident. It's that you, you made a choice earlier to impair yourself or you know, drive at an uncontrollable rate of speed or something. So yeah, I think it sounded like they were doing kind of an umbrella term there for uh, the human side of things. Yeah, and they also um, avoid the word accident. They, they use the word crash, and I think they, uh, to play up the, the, the improvement to safety, you, you don't want to call these things accidents. Uh, it sort of has a no-fault implication. Um, when 94% of these are human error, the implication is that uh, later on you can remove the human from the judgment, and a lot of these, uh, both deaths and uh, injuries, will, will go away. And that's the, one of the primary uh, considerations for um, the Department of Transportation is to ensure the safety of people traveling. And so they, f they feel it's their responsibility to accelerate the advent of these vehicles because it will actually increase safety in their view. Um, so I think that was sort of bullet point number one of the executive summary. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting in how it's, it's almost laying a foundation to start a discussion around the fact that there are this many people dying every year in cars i mean because the number of people dying in uh, automobile incidents uh has gone down over time as cars have gotten safer mostly um you know people are are more likely to survive crashes that would have impaled or killed them uh in in older vehicles with you know airbags and crumple zones and all of the technology around that yep but i think there's a a sort of it's a sort of out of sight, out of mind thing for most people where they don't, no one, I, I doubt as many people would spend as much time in their vehicles if they were really concerned about it being as dangerous as it is. I think there's sort of a um, denialism, I guess, that, that collective uh, cognitive dissonance sort of denial that goes on. Uh, and uh, because, you know, you need to be in your vehicle to get around. So I think it's pretty natural that you just kind of don't rationally calculate the the dangers and it feels like they're just starting to lay a foundation for that to surface those numbers in the com in the consciousness of people where otherwise they would probably think that you know this is the status quo but yeah i mean it is the status quo but the status quo is is pretty awful all you have to do is watch the local news on any given night and there's accidents and people dying on highways and it's yeah it's 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 sort of the the carnage we know i guess I mean, even even to the point where it's so um, accepted that 
on Google Maps and ways and things, you see there's an accident up ahead and you think, uh, at least for me, I often am thinking, oh, there's going to be a slowdown. And right. you don't even think about what is actually what that actually means. Yeah, there might be a dead human being up there or multiple human beings. Yeah. And and also that the, the one that struck me was the 2.4 million people injured. So even though cars are safer, um, being in a being in a car crash or um, being hit by a car is still going to cause a ton of, of health related issues, um, disabilities, uh, and even just even on the very minor fender benders, you know, loss of productivity and and damage to your vehicles and cost uh, to the insurance industry and as a result uh, the consumers. So all of those are. Um, sort of the opportunity space. And I think once you actually have a path to making some substantive improvement there, then you can actually start talking about it. And I think that's sort of the point is that they, the Department of Transportation now feels that they have some some uh, way to actually influence those numbers and bring them down further beyond where they are today. And that what a lot of these companies need is really clear guidance and support from the federal government to allow these technologies to be made possible. And um, because they are so broad and so wide ranging in their implications to vehicles, that uh, this is actually something within their power to help um, to help drive these numbers down from sort of a plateau of where they've been for the past decade. One of the other really interesting points in the intro was um, the statement that I thought was quite, quite prescient and quite smart for, for them um, was... <laughs> While a human driver may repeat the same mistake as millions before them, an HAV, a HAV, can benefit from the data and experience drawn from thousands of other vehicles on the road. Um, so HAV is a term they're using for um, highly automated vehicle. Um, yeah, this, this report is, is sprinkled uh, throughout with uh, three-letter acronyms. I would say littered, but sprinkled littered. is the kinder. Yeah, yeah, littered might be better. All right, so we've got the HAVs and... and I guess we're implying we've got haves and have-nots. We do. Yes, that's good. So, a have is uh, what they're calling the uh, levels three to five, right? From the yep. from the zero to five scale. Yeah, on the SAE scale. Um, and they've chosen to adopt that for their standards going forward as well. And so, I think, you know, the, the point here is just that they're recognizing that fleet learning and the actual vehicles learning is going to be critically important and that they're a aware of that. And I mean, I, I think that just shows that they are actually quite um, cognizant of, of how this is going to work and have been talking to manufacturers and folks like Tesla and others who are, and Google obviously, who are expounding the benefits of this and who talk about fleet learning in many of their public discussions. And to see that filter into the executive summary, I think it's just good and i think also just having read most of the document i feel like overall i haven't read too many government issued documents about policy frameworks um <laughs> some accounting ones but nothing on the automotive side but overall it seemed pretty sane uh i have to say um if anyone's interested in reading it we'll, we'll put it in the show notes essentially um it it was quite um quite direct and quite thoughtful. Um, and I thought even some of the technology stuff was maybe slightly impractical, but at least they were being smart about it. And we'll get to some more of those. Yeah. It was all stuff that made a lot of sense. If you've been following this space at all, there was nothing that came out of left field and there was nothing overly prescriptive or specific where it felt like it was more general guidelines and all things that would probably fall into 
common sense, I guess, for uh, people in the space. Yeah. So the four key things that they said were the motivating factors. We've touched on a few of them, but just to be uh, complete, safety. So helping the vast majority of car crashes that result from human error judgment, saving those thousands of lives. Mobility, transforming personal mobility for millions of Americans. Productivity, reducing the cost of transportation for families, businesses, communities and sustainability, which was last, uh, of improving the efficiency of vehicles and reducing road construction uh, congestion. And then very far at the end of that statement saying that this might also accelerate electrification. Um, so uh, not hinging autonomy with electrification, uh, <laughs> but detaching it and, and creating uh, the, the sort of framework for it to be independent of electrification uh, and not making a value judgment about them being linked where obviously we, uh, following Tesla, they are inextricably linked for Tesla, but for many automakers, they, they won't be. Yeah. So one of the other things they talked about in the early sections was how to prepare the public for these transformations was saying uh, that new, new vehicle technologies that were developed in the 20th century, such as seat belts and airbags, child seats, were once controversial at their introduction, but after having saved hundreds of thousands of lives, they're now considered indispensable in their words. And that these advanced technologies from automatic emergency braking and lane departure are already making their way into vehicles. And they sort of pose the question to the reader of how many more lives might be saved today and in the future with highly automated vehicles. And the Department of Transportation is committed to finding out. So they sort of end their opening statements with that point of it may be scary there may be problems there may be some issues but we are determined to figuring this out and doing it in an open way and in a way that doesn't stymie innovation i think that the, the phrase innovation uh advancement technology uh all these sort of safety were the sort of buzzwords if you had to reduce down what the, yeah. the president was talking about and the department of transportation's team was talking about um they, they definitely seem on message around this being uh, good overall and not being a um, scary thing that the government's now coming in to crack down on. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, people who aren't necessarily keeping up with this sort of stuff and, and people who aren't even necessarily keeping up with the advances in technology, the idea of computers taking over your car might be kind of terrifying if your mm -hmm. only experience with computers is the buggy, virus-ridden Dell laptop running Windows that you need to use Facebook or whatever. That uh, the uh, thinking about that being in control of your life as you drive down the highway is uh, yeah is probably uh, terrifying. Yeah, and, and, and I think they also wanted to make it clear that the government is watching out and going to be monitoring this so that you can um, know that it isn't completely the Wild West out there, um, that, it, that it isn't just uh, these companies doing whatever they want, that we are watching and we are involved and we're working with these companies to, to make sure this is safe. Because I think a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of people see these as science projects and they hear about the Google cars and the uber self-driving and and they're these small tests and it's not clear when they're actually coming out for real you hear big companies like ford talking about 2020 2021 and it's just it's still this sort of futuristic thing 
And that's a little scary. Um, yeah, well, we're not that far from the, uh, what was it, ARPA's uh, desert run where they had yep. the, uh, the, I think at some point it took the first year, like, no car could even finish. And then at some point, I think the Stanford team had a VW Toreg that managed to make it through. But yeah, things are moving really quickly. Absolutely. Um, one, of the, one of the other things I thought was important and some of the media coverage of this didn't quite capture was that these are not laws. Uh, so we're going to describe some of the things that the Department of Transportation recommends, but these are guidelines. And so from a, a legal framework, these are pre-law. This is what they hope uh, companies conform with in advance of needing to actually create regulation. And one of, the, one of the things in doing research about the NHTSA and the Department of Transportation and the relationship with automakers is that even to the point of a lot of safety features, many cars uh, just have to self-certify that they meet the standards for having airbags and brakes and all the, the standard uh, features. And only if they're found to be not in compliance with the safety standards um, will they have to issue a recall or, or get in uh, in sort of legal problems with the federal government? Oh, is this related to crash tests too? Or is that something yeah, different? It is um, that you need to be safe enough to meet certain standards, but they don't test every car before it ships. Um, and so it's possible that a vehicle would, um, would be unsafe and found out after the fact. And so just, just sort of to, uh, to remind people that the, at this part of the federal government, which has a, a budget of only around $800 million for um, the NHTSA, which is actually responsible for all this, and that's sort of in comparison with the EPA, which is $8 billion a year, the FDA, which is $4 billion, and the DEA, which is $2 billion. So it's one of the smallest sort of enforcement agencies for public safety at $800 million, so under a $1 billion dollars that um, this is one of the first times they're really sort of going out in advance of, of the technology being out there. And that these are guidelines because they hope not to actually have to create many laws. They would prefer that uh, companies self-regulate and create safe policies and safe cars and good software. And that states introduce very open laws that will encourage vehicles to be able to move across states without having issues with local patrol men and women. Right. You got interstate commerce going on there. Right. Exactly. We don't want the big trucks to have to put new sensors on when they cross over state, state boundaries. So <laughs> they're kind of trying to get out there, but not, um, not create laws in advance of actually understanding what's going to happen here. So I think that was also pretty uh, reasonable. And, and a lot of the automakers who did make public comment um, were not rallying against this uh, proposed guidelines. It seemed relatively tame and, and well-received. So um, we'll go through some of the details of it now, but I think that's also an important component here is that th there aren't actually any new laws. This is all uh, voluntary compliance with these concepts and more illustrative of their thinking than uh, forced regulation. So folks who are uh, libertarian or, or quite right-leaning, um, <laughs> there, there are no new laws yet. These are just um, guidelines. Right. It kind of reminds me of a story about government websites in South Korea, where they 
mandated back in the late 90s, I believe. And I might be screwing this up because I'm digging deep in my brain for this. But they had something where they mandated uh, Internet Explorer as the tool for getting access to government websites. They had some sort of ActiveX control Mm. that was used everywhere. And because they codified that into law, it's this weird thing where now you have I, I don't know if it's still like this, but a few years ago when I was reading this, the, they still had this problem where you had to support Internet Explorer and this weird ActiveX control to access certain government features because it was the law. Right, exactly. They don't want to get into a place where they mandate you have to have some certain type of radar, or some certain type of LIDAR, or have a, a computer of a certain amount of processing power, and then create a really weird perverted system where all these auto manufacturers are are creating these strange systems. Um, Right, because the law is going to move way slower than any technology. Exactly. And they recognize that. um, And they they stated that multiple times that they don't think they're going to be able to keep up. And so their approach is actually to, to sort of indicate the outcomes they want to have happen and then let the individual companies figure out how their cars and trucks will meet those certain outcomes and they will judge the outcomes and the decision-making processes with which they claim those outcomes are met, but not regulate how it's done. So basically it's a driving test for robots. Yeah, it's sort of a driving test for robots. And then it's also a decision-making test for the people who are implementing them. So they have to describe in pretty clear detail how they made many of these decisions so that when something goes wrong and the government is concerned, they can go to these companies with these sort of signed documents that they submitted to understand why what they said it did isn't actually what happened. So they don't necessarily need to understand how it works, um, but they (laughs) just need to understand what happened. So that's their theory. Um, One of the components of this was the, the guidelines for the performance of the vehicles, a uh, model state policy for how states should deal with it, and then the NHTSA's current regulatory tools to talk about how they currently can influence self-driving vehicles and deal with recalls and such. And then also finally ending with a section around the new tools and authorities they may need in the future that their current congressionally uh, appointed rights do not cover. But in this episode, I'm most interested in talking about the actual vehicle performance guidance for automated vehicles, since it's sort of this 15-point checklist that's been floating around in a lot of the news articles. But I haven't heard too many people go into detail about what the heck was mentioned. So that's what we want to spend the majority of the time talking about. Yeah, the checklist is, is very interesting, especially since we've covered a couple of these in episodes already, too. So, you know, pat ourselves on the back and uh, yeah, let's let's dive into this checklist. All right. So we'll go through all 15 real, real rapid fire. <laughs> Let's do a lightning round. A lightning round. Yeah, sure. So what are the, uh, what are the 15? And, and then maybe we can kind of pick a few out that, that we want to drill in on. Okay. So these are the 15 that are supposed to be described back to NHTSA from each manufacturer for each highly automated vehicle have uh, that they are working on. Okay. So here we go. Number one, operational design domain. This means how and where the have is supposed to function and operate. So basically, where and what uh, for this level of autonomy does it work? Does it work at night? Does it work in cities only? Does it work in rural areas? What are you claiming that this uh, level of autonomy will do and how does it do it? That's number one. So this means you can divide companies like Auto, which was bought by Uber, which is doing mostly interstate trucking, 
versus maybe like some of the uh, taxi bus type vehicles that might only work in denser environments where you could have niche vehicles? Yep, niche vehicles, niche applications, and basically cover your butt in terms of what you're saying your part of this system is going to do. And because they realize it's not going to be level five, the car doing everything in every circumstance perfectly, they are creating a way for manufacturers to allow, you know, for instance, saying we're going to avoid hitting deer. (laughs) And that will be like, we're going to avoid hitting animals in like emergency braking situations. And that'll be one of our automated systems. And then we're going to have a self-driving lane keeping and like highway driving environment. But we we make no claims about city driving. And so we won't let the car drive in the city. So they want to know where the vehicle is autonomous and where it isn't. So that's number one. Okay, sorry, I, I got us off lightning round here. Let's continue going through them, and I will not interrupt you like I just did with number one. So. No, that's okay. I'm, I'm sure that's, uh, that's what you were <laughs> thinking and feeling. Let it flow. Uh, number two, object and event detection and response. So this is the uh, ability to perceive and respond to the real world that the HAVE system has to understand. Number three is fallback. Um, so what happens when the system has a failure of some sort? How does it respond to that? Number four is a validation method. So how do you as a company making this test validate and verify that the HAVE system does what you say it does and ensure that it's safe? Number five is registration and certification. So this is basically you need to register and certify to NHTSA that the HAVE system exists and that you're going to deploy it. Number six is data recording and sharing. What data does the HAVE record and is there the capability for crash reconstruction and reporting of the Uh, any sort of safety benefits. Number seven is the post-crash behavior. So what happens if your car gets hit and sensors are damaged? Uh, How does the car respond? What happens if the car can't uh, drive itself anymore? You need to have ways to cope with that. Number eight is privacy. These cars have way more data. They're usually connected to the internet. How are you protecting the privacy of the consumer or uh, occupants of the vehicle from their personal information? Number nine is system safety. How are you engineering the safety practices? Number 10 is vehicle cybersecurity. Approaches to guard against vehicle hacking risks. Hallelujah. Uh, Number 11 is human-machine interface. So how do you communicate with the driver, other occupants, and other road users, which might be pedestrians, cyclists, uh, other drivers? Number 12 is crashworthiness. So ensuring the protection of the occupants in crashing situations. Uh, Number 13 is consumer education and training. How are you educating and training users and the public of your HAV's capabilities? Number 14, the penultimate, (laughs) ethical considerations. How are your vehicles programmed to address conflicts? Number 15, federal, state, local laws. How are the vehicles programmed to comply with all the applicable traffic laws? So that is all 15. Wow, take a breath. You've earned it. All right breath. <laughs> so yeah, so let's uh maybe we can dive into some of the ones that are interesting. I mean, I think some of them like crashworthiness are pretty self-explanatory. Uh yep. registration and certification, obviously, yes, that makes sense. So yeah, maybe we can drill into some of them that I mean, personally, the ones I think are really interesting are uh data recording and sharing and privacy kind of go hand in hand. Um those are pretty interesting. Vehicle cybersecurity, number 10, is extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, number 11, human-machine interface, I thought was really interesting because it also introduces this uh, idea of communicating with the outside world and not just yep. the the person in the vehicle. 
Um, and then of course, I just want to pat ourselves on the back for ethical considerations as a official bullet point. And we did do a whole episode on the ethical considerations of we did. autonomous vehicles. Although then I was just reading something recently in, uh, in I think this month's edition of Nautilus magazine, which is a, a great, um, kind of pop science magazine. If, if you don't read it, you should, it has a lot of interesting stuff in it. And they had a pretty interesting article, this edition about how, we don't necessarily know how these deep learning neural networks are working, that essentially people are having to reverse engineer how they think these systems are working. So you've got these neural networks that are really good at recognizing faces, but we don't necessarily know exactly. I mean, we know how they're set up, but we don't know exactly how they're doing what they're doing. And there is a uh, a trade-off between uh, the the more effective the methods are, the less understandable they are. So anyways, that is fresh in my mind and was kind of kind of interesting there where we could end up with something where we don't actually know why it makes the decisions it makes. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the really big um, blind spots in this document because a lot of what they're talking about when you read each individual section is the company outlining how they designed the system, how they tested it, how they verified that A, it was crashworthy or that the cybersecurity system is sound using air quotes, best industry practices for all of these things. <laughs> and then having a way that in the event of some sort of incident, being able to reverse engineer and prove back how the decision was made. And in the situation where there are neural networks involved, it's sort of like asking someone, why did you swerve left instead of right? It's sort of a Right. It, it's it's up to interpretation. Um, these are not deterministic systems that you can look back in the code and sort of follow the logic tree of what happened. And especially in the ethical one, they talked about, well, you, there's branching logic that might lead you to make one decision or another. And ultimately, some of these systems might not, they may be more artificial intelligence inspired, neural network inspired, and the makers of them could not predict in advance what would happen. And even after getting the result, that they couldn't necessarily guarantee that the same outcome would, would happen again, um, yeah. given slightly different stimulus. And I think that was what Elon was talking about on the last call was like, there is no perfect safety. And they can't even guarantee that with the new software update that the, the crash in Florida wouldn't happen again, because they can't know for sure what, what if all those conditions were exactly the same, what would have happened. And I think that scares the, the poop out of these regulators because <laughs> they, they, they're not used to that. They want someone to tell them this is why and this is what would have happened. Nice. And you avoided us having to use a uh, sensor horn right there. As long as poop is okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that the, uh, oh, I'm not supposed to say interesting either. All my verbal ticks are coming out here. It is a challenge that we might not necessarily be able to describe. I mean, there's the idea of what's called an expert system, where it's essentially this giant logic tree of if this is the case, then do this. If that, if this, do, then do this. Uh, and that was where AI was 30 years ago and ended up not being a uh, fruitful avenue for most things. Uh, and, the, and a lot of the applications that you're seeing nowadays are, are more, I guess, biological based where uh, all these like neural networks and deep learning and, uh, and it's a lot less understandable as to, as to what's going on. But it, it's also you could get into a situation too, where you might, uh, as these, as you have like a fleet learning model going on and the, this almost like, uh, entity that's, that's learning and sort of evolving its ability to drive, 
maybe as it as certain branches of this evolutionary tree make mistakes, you might need some ability to roll back certain branches of evolution, I guess, and then sort of force a species, I guess, to go extinct. Uh, if, if we're kind of blurring the, uh, the digital and the biological here, where you could imagine something like that, where you might not necessarily know why, but you need to sort of kill a line of cars, I guess, that aren't uh, performing well and, and bring them, uh, reboot them as a, uh, as a different species. Yeah. I mean, certainly uh, the concept that depending, like if they don't have a full sensor suite, the same way that a, a child may learn a behavior that they later need to unlearn because they didn't have the capabilities to deal with that concept, right? Like maybe you, you say certain things at home that you're not supposed to say out in public. <laughs> that sort of requires a, another level of understanding that there are, that's okay in certain circumstances and not in others. And so um, the idea that these cars may behave differently in different environments and then actually need either new training data or new sensors or just sort of new programming models to understand how to not behave the exact same way going around a turn off of an exit versus going around a turn of the same arc on flat sort of roads on uh, exiting a highway, you're going to do it a little bit differently than you might on surface streets near a school or something, um, even though the, the, you know, the parameters of that road are the same. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's definitely real. And I think one of the other things that stood out to me that I hadn't seen clear uh, description of before, uh, sort of jumping back to sort of the very top of these 15 guidelines, was that they, they stated clearly, under current law, manufacturers bear the responsibility to self-certify all the vehicles they manufacture for use on public roadways, comply with applicable federal motor vehicle safety standards. Secondly, therefore, if a vehicle is compliant within the existing FMVSS regulatory framework and maintains a conventional vehicle design, there is currently no specific federal legal barrier to an have being offered for sale. So they're saying there is no limit currently, as long as the car has a traditional design, which basically means that it has a forward-facing driver seat, brake pedals, turn signals, all the standard components of a car, there's nothing that's stopping a level five car from being sold. So that's super interesting to me. And that all these subsequent 15 guidelines are to ensure that that vehicle won't be recalled for being unsafe, but, but there's nothing stopping someone from selling that. So I thought that was really a powerful, um, it's not an admission, it's just a statement of, of policy that I, I, I hadn't heard actually. I didn't know that that would actually be possible. Um, so I thought that was really, really cool. It's a statement of pre-policy, I guess, or, or no, no policy, but pre-law. It is policy. Yeah, pre-law. Policy, pre-law, right. They don't think there's any, any reason in the current law that would prevent that from happening. No new laws need to be created to allow it to be offered for sale. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting uh, that they're, yeah, they're going into the self-reporting, I guess, for now, which seems like the, I guess, the lightest weight way to, to go about it. Yeah. So they expect uh, every company that's selling a level three or higher to uh, submit a safety assessment within four months of the vehicle being uh, tested or made available for sale. And that every time there's a major change to the software or hardware of that vehicle, they expect a new report to be submitted with the changes and what's different. So basically there will be on the web somewhere, a listing of all the cars that are being tested with all of their current capabilities publicly available. 
So that'll be kind of fun to go through. Yeah, it was pretty adamant about making sure that all this stuff was public. And I, I guess building up the public trust by being as transparent as possible with the uh, with the results. Um, and then, you, so you mentioned demonstrating the uh, the competence, I guess, of the of the vehicles. Is there mm-hmm. there is there a uh, not a checklist, but is there some sort of definition as to what driving tests that these vehicles need to need to do, need to be able to do? Yes, there is. So they've talked about this idea of sort of normal. The, the cars need to be able to drive normally, and <laughs> well, hopefully drive well, not not necessarily normal, but yeah, yeah, hopefully better. So because these cars are, are going to need to interact with other other human drivers, they uh, need to not only perform the written law of how cars are supposed to abide, but the standard driving books and for, for federal law as well as local and state don't actually describe all the things you need to do as a driver. So some of the ones I thought were particularly interesting, being able to perform a highway speed merge. So example they gave was a freeway. So... If you want your car to be fully self-driving and and sort of pass the standards, it'll need to be able to do that, which isn't unusual, but is good to see that outlined. Another one was detect passing and no passing zones and perform passing maneuvers. Um, So if you get stuck behind a really slow truck, your car needs to be able to pass. (laughs) And uh, one of the other ones that was kind of cool was... um, Navigate roundabouts, so that would do better than most Americans. <laughs> Navigate a parking lot and locate spaces. Follow police first responders controlling a traffic intersection. Also being able to respond to citizens directing traffic after a crash. So after a crash, sometimes people will get out and try and drive, you know, help help deal with the scene and, and stop people from getting in a pileup. So your car needs to be able to deal with that yielding to pedestrians. So there are like 20 or 30 different, it basically is a a mini checklist of if you're designing a self-driving car, what you like, basically the spec in software terms of what the car should be able to do and provides a really clear understanding of like, okay, if I'm buying a car and I think it's self-driving, how many of these things can it actually do and that uh, auto manufacturers will probably be describing which of these they can actually perform and under what circumstances. Um, so it was it was really clear. It, it reads pretty much like what you'd expect to be on the clipboard of the driving instructor who's sitting in the passenger seat when you're trying to get your driver's license. Right, exactly. One of the other components I thought was um, pretty important was uh, this idea that all these guidelines are talking about the level three, four, and five. Because in those situations, the car has to both actually execute the driving mechanisms, but also be aware of its surroundings. And in level zero, one, and two, uh, the human driver is always fully in the loop. But one of the things I talked about towards the end was uh, this very specific call out towards level two complacency. And I, I can't <laughs> help but believe this is part of a response to some of the challenges around the Tesla autopilot. Um, and their direct quote here was that manufacturers and other entities should assume that the technical distinction between the levels of automation between level two and three may not be clear to all users or the general public and systems expectations of drivers and those drivers actual understanding of the critical importance of their supervisory role may be materially different. And I think this really hits on the tension between people who are critics of, of uh, autopilot and Tesla's um, continued sort of trying to make it more clear to drivers that they need to be fully involved, 
even when it sometimes feels like they don't need to be. Right. And this is them really trying to make it clear to the automakers and I guess just everyone in the supply chain that um, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration believes it is their responsibility, as in the manufacturers, to ensure that people understand. Um, And if they don't, they see that as a failure of the design of the system. So um, I think it's sort of a, a, a an early warning that uh, <laughs> people need to be quite um, quite aware of this. Otherwise, they will they will get more involved. Yeah, it's, well, it's a difficult tension too because you're you want to sell the people who are buying these vehicles on these features, but you inherent in any sales pitch is a little bit of overpromising, right? Or 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 at least selling the best case scenario. Yeah, and I think that's they, it. Didn't get mentioned, but I think uh, the the other agency that might get involved would be the FTC um, for false advertising claims or over uh, advertising. And Mercedes had an issue where they had uh, some ads that said self driving in them, and they had to they had to retract them, recant them because um, they they had some some people claim that was not true and uh, got slammed with some false advertising uh, potential claims. So they decided to pull them. Um, but I think uh, uh, autopilot certainly walks a very fine line. I think <laughs> in the letter of the law, I think it's correct. But certainly in the spirit of the law for many consumers, they think it is a self-driving car. And, uh, and, and I think NHTSA and the Department of Transportation wants to make it very clear to these automakers that that is not going to be acceptable to them and that they are watching out for folks who are over-promising in, in the capabilities. Maybe we'll get to level three before they have a chance to really uh, clamp down on that. Hopefully. <laughs> I thought the um, the other thing that was interesting was the this idea of a human-machine interface, uh, which makes a lot of sense talking about, you know, as the occupant of the vehicle, trying to notify you when you need to take over, uh, notifying you of what the vehicle is doing, all that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what is pretty new about this is the idea of communicating to people outside of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a sort of a, a binary way right now of communicating outside the vehicle where you have a horn. I guess maybe it's maybe it's not quite binary because you can do like a friendly horn versus a angry horn. So maybe it's like a two bit interface. Well, and you have more. I mean, you have the motion of the car, right? There's the creeping aspect. And then there's also looking at the driver. So we actually have a lot. And if you to- if that if that windscreen was completely um, blacked out, uh, I think it would be quite difficult to as a pedestrian navigating around to ensure your safety and so in what they called out here was that um, these cars may need to be able to actually communicate with pedestrians and other vehicles through some sort of new interface and they didn't dictate what interface that needs to be Um, but we've seen some experiments around the thing mercedes the the super crazy mercedes would project light onto the ground (laughs) with like crossing signs or stop signs that make pedestrians behave. Yeah, there's one that has a, uh, I think a startup in Mountain View maybe that has a uh, screen that they put on top of the vehicle and it's displaying either like an emoticon kind of face or Mm -hmm. like just actual messaging saying like, you know, I'm not moving or safe to cross or, or something like that. But then you mentioned uh, right before we started recording, you mentioned to the the sort of other direction of this, which is pretty interesting, where cars might have to be able to hear sirens or uh, maybe if if you just noticed there was a train going through right as I was talking earlier uh, and then a train horn or something that as a human driver you would notice. But uh, none of these uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, I think you mentioned, don't have any sort of audio microphones as input. 
Yeah. And, and then one of the other ones that they were talking about um, was that, you know, these, these vehicles, especially since they're going to be accommodating more folks with disabilities, also need to make sure that their interfaces, uh, you know, currently most car, I mean, all cars have the assumption that everyone who's using them as drivers are sighted mm. because you can't be licensed if you're not sighted. But now you may have folks who are uh, low, low sight or blind and um, need to have haptics or, uh, you know, more, more um, tactile controls. Um, and so that was really fascinating, as well as uh, folks who are, who are um, deaf. Um, and so, you know, just, just car manufacturers and designers needing to consider a broader set of accessibility for these vehicles, where typically that's not been part of the design um, considerations because those haven't been uh, consumers of theirs. Uh, I thought that was really um, intriguing, especially in the in the failure cases, um, because they they were talking about you know if if that car um, isn't able to get from point A to point B and actually has a malfunction, that it needs to be able to communicate that to to the occupant and also safely navigate away, and that it's possible that the occupant actually is drunk is unable to drive, is too young to drive, never has had a license. Right. And so you can't rely on them being able to drive uh, to take over in all cases. So that was a really interesting one where it's like, well, I have a, I have a self-driving car. Um, I don't have a license anymore and I'm drunk, but now the, but the car sells a steering wheel and I'm sitting in the driver's seat, but I'm not driving, but I need to take over. I wonder if that opens up the ability for some sort of remote driving service too. Like maybe the, the AAA of the future would be a service where someone could just take over and, and remotely pilot you to where you need to go. They mentioned something like that. They mentioned that for the, for the vehicles that are not going to have any humans inside, like delivery trucks and things like that that the remote operators need to be able to understand what's going on with the fleet and deal with uh, incidents if the vehicle itself can't. So it, I think that there's just there's a lot of interesting scenarios that they are already contemplating, and that gave me um, actually a good amount of confidence that they are thinking about these issues, and they've consulted with a lot of folks um, to create these guidelines. It's not, it's not a purely mechanical um, sort of, of guidelines. It definitely has more broader... Uh, implications and sort of concepts um, illustrated. And it really just challenges the folks who are working on these systems to have thoughts about this and answers for this. And then they have to describe their solutions. Um, and so the, it, I think reading these submissions will be really fascinating yeah. if you're into this because <laughs> you're going to hear what Ford and what Chrysler and GM and Tesla and Google have to say about all of these 15 bullet points Um in, in each of their vehicles and how they deal with it. So I think we're going to get a whole new level of transparency um, because I think the, the auto manufacturers are going to comply because their worst nightmare is for there to be more laws introduced that stop them from doing this. And uh, I think they're going to want to um, self-comply and show how good they're being and how, how much they're contributing because they know there will be accidents. And so they need to make sure that the Department of Transportation and NHTSA are going to wholeheartedly say, this car company has uh, s uh, submitted everything we've ever asked for voluntarily. They have great engineers. They have all this documentation. We've been looking at it for years, and it's unfortunate this accident has happened, but we're not going to let it stop us because they've been doing everything we want, and they're a model citizen. Right. And I don't think any one of these manufacturers wants to be on the side of, 
this this company never turned in their homework and uh, we're going to go make an example of them because they haven't been following our guidelines so yeah, or worse yet you have to take their word that they're doing everything yeah and i think that's going to be um in tesla's particular case they've also said we're going to they, they um uh, they're trying to figure out how to do this in a, in a comp- in a way that allows companies to still be competitive because they don't want to have to share trade secrets. So I think that might be a place where people push back on one of the one of the tenants was data sharing, and I just can't foresee many of the automakers wanting to share this data publicly um, <laughs> for other automakers. So te- so that Tesla's competitors can get as good as they are uh, by sharing their data. I just don't see that happening. I think that the fleet learning is going to be a competitive advantage. Um, and, and so as much as the Department of Transportation would like all the automakers to share the data so they all advance faster, I think the business realities aren't going to allow that. So I think that that will change. I wonder if they would get into the you could imagine a scenario where the ability to navigate and drive is proprietary, but the mapping might be something that is shared, I guess. Like, why would a why would a new company have to map the entire country? That's that's a little bit weird. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say that so much money is being spent on mapping because they see it as a defensible asset. It's hard, and yeah. so it's it's valuable. Um, I think if anything, crash data will be shared um, because they're rare, and no car company wants to have crashes happen, regardless of who's who, you know who's sold that car. Um, so I, I think, and also because there will be public investigations, it makes sense to be in front of that. There was no mention of anything like a black box. I was expecting to see some sort of like aviation black box requirement. I mean, I guess it's, you could infer it from, from some of these. It was in the data recording section. Um, oh, okay. cause they have, they have a section for like, you need to be able to, um, reconstruct a crash. So for crash reconstruction purposes, including during testing, the data should be stored, maintained and readily available for retrieval by the entity itself and by NHTSA. So, um, they're imploring all of the car companies to store all the data from the sensors uh, somewhere and hopefully on the cloud so that it can actually be uh, reconstructed, which we believe Tesla has been doing a pretty good job of. And then also, the vehicles should record at a minimum all information relevant to the event and the performance of the system so that the circumstances of the event can be reconstructed. This data should also contain information relating to the status of the HAV system and if the HAV system or human driver was in control of the vehicle at the time. I mean, they're being pretty prescriptive here around you, know. you need to store all of this data that you have and it needs to be in a format that not only you can use but NHTSA can use. And uh, we also want you to store all the positive outcomes as well. So they're also saying you should also store when your automatic braking system saves the day or when your automatic lane departure stops someone from drifting into another car or when your uh, automatic avoidance of a crash saves saves someone because they also want to tout the positive ones. Um, so they, they, they're encouraging folks to record and save all this. Um, Filtered for privacy, though, of course. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And they said filtered for privacy, but that doesn't make any sense because if you get into an accident, they know. I mean, I just don't understand how they're going to square that concept that they know which particular vehicle it was, and how can they not know who the? I mean, well, I think it's you don't want to necessarily say that uh, your car was you prevented a fender bender in the parking lot of a strip club or something. You know, like that would be a uh, something that you might not want being public. Yeah, certainly. I guess. Um, it'll, it'll, it remains to be seen how that is actually executed because we've seen many cases where even Google Wi-Fi and, 
location mapping stuff that is anonymized is not actually anonymous. So I, I don't have high hopes for uh, for certain car companies being able to actually uh, anonymize data well. well. And it could be material too, right? If it's the like neon girly sign that actually caused the confusion for the sensors, then you know maybe you have to disclose that. Yeah. But it, I guess you don't have to disclose the owner of the vehicle. Yeah, you don't, you wouldn't have to necessarily disclose that. I'm just saying that it is still known. It's still like, yeah. there's still many factors that are identifying, right? If, if it's a particular Model S of a certain size, like certain color, and, and that's not identifying, but the fact that that's the only one in your neighborhood in this strip club, like, <laughs> it's pretty obvious to tell who you are, right? If, if you're yeah. the only person in your town with that kind of car. So... I think that's sort of the unintended consequences of, of uh, de-anonymizing things. Is it uh, enough de-anon- enough anonymous data points can make someone not anonymous? But anyways, we're getting a little off topic. Was there anything <laughs> else uh, from the from the document that in closing you, you wanted to call out or thought was particularly important? I don't think so. I mean, I think that was pretty good for now. We're way over our time limit, so maybe we can uh, maybe we can digest this for a week and, and come back to it if we if we have some more stuff. Yeah. Unless you had, did you have something off the top of your head that you wanted to uh, throw out here? I think that um, after reading uh, quite a lot of this document, and there's still more to go, I was uh, pleasantly impressed with uh, the thoughtfulness and the comprehensiveness of the document. Um, I think that this is actually a positive step forward. I think the fact that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Department of Transportation more broadly, as well as the uh, Obama administration, are uh, supporting self-driving vehicles and automated vehicles in all of their forms is really a positive sign. I think it's all too easy for any large organization to try to slow down progress and technological progress, especially when things can be dangerous. And I think it's really fascinating that um, most of the criticism has been around safety, and yet the primary motivation for building this technology is safety is such a fascinating paradox because in the progress of making things more safe, we inherently are going to cause people to die. And yet uh, it is most likely true that these are already saving lives um, and helping avoid accidents. And so the small, the the rare cases when things do go wrong will be amplified because they will be in self-driving. And yet fundamentally this is on the right path. And I think it's a good sign that the government who is tasked with, uh, you know, following up with and issuing and protecting the general safety, they seem to understand that that's a dichotomy that they have to uh, accept to, to make this progress. And I think that's really positive for the progress of this. Um, so I'm encouraged that this could have gone the other way. The negative press around the Tesla incidents could have caused a more uh, conservative approach to a zero tolerance policy for any accidents with self-driving vehicles, even though that's in, in empirically impossible. Um, and so I think this is a, a good progression and I'm excited to see uh, the public discussion over the next 60 days and what the future updates hold and especially what the vehicle makers uh, actually submit and what their responses over the next few months are because that will be quite telling uh, if they take this seriously or if they think this is sort of they're going to ignore it until it actually is is law yeah it's hard to imagine that happening it seems uh it seems like i would expect responses from everyone involved here um and yeah i would say the most the most striking thing for me in reading it was that nothing really seemed outrageous which is pretty good Mm -hmm. 
uh, yeah. it, it all seemed inherently reasonable and, uh, yeah, seems, <laughs> it seems like just good common sense. And that is not common with government uh, created documents. So I think that that's a good way to end. So right. if anyone has any more uh, comments or thoughts about this, um, they can leave a comment on our website, theteslashow.com. You can also uh, talk to us on Twitter at the Tesla show and find us on our subreddit on Reddit at r slash the Tesla show. And if you are a government employee involved with any of this stuff, feel free to reach out and we will give you full whistleblower protection. I cannot claim that, but we could put you on the show. <laughs> I'm not even sure what it means. So maybe and I... we could use voice modulation if you'd like. Oh, that would be pretty cool. Can we do that? I'm sure we can. Uh, GarageBand has that. All right. We're in there then. All right. All right. Well, with that, I'll talk to you later, Mike, and uh, turn on that AC again. Yes, it's going on right now. All right. See you later.